0: Um, so pray that the God may be with us this morning. Thank you for allowing us to be with you and to share these precious moments together. Um, so we posted an advertisement on Facebook. And we'll be dealing for some time, for the time that we'll be here uh, with this uh, uh Basic uh, issue, the collapsing of our world. And um, it is not a subject that can be treated with any depth in one session. <laughs> so we'll be spending uh, most of our time, the times so when we'll be together, just on this issue, and we'll be continue to publicize it around the area, Lord willing, so that people may know. That uh, there is a, a church here and that we preach the gospel. So, and then be uh, drawn by the Lord to hear His word. Where do we begin? Well, perhaps uh, with the opening of our eyes. Uh, it is uh, an undisputable fact that our civilization is crumbling so I do not really want to elaborate much on that Um, but I do want to immediately make reference to a a basic principle that uh, the present cannot be understood apart from the past Uh, if we are at this point if we find ourselves at this point and I'm not speaking personally or just concerning us in this place this morning but our civilization as it is there have been forces at work that have been events that took place that have been ideologies that have molded the process by which we have come to be where we are and uh, so our present situation cannot be understood apart from the past what do we see when we look at the past? Well, of course, we see that our civilization is not just, it's not uh, begun to crumble uh, recently. It has been a long process. Uh, Where did our modern civilization start? Well, the fabric of it, the ideological fabric, was begun in what we call the Enlightenment. Uh, the basic idea was that uh, whereas the Reformation proposed and preached a vision of life that was centered on God. Uh, the, what the Enlightenment proposed was a, a vision of life, a view of life, what they called a worldview that centered on man. Man was to be the subject of and the object um, of it all. The beginning and the end of his own existence. So, already by the 1800s, so the Enlightenment, we would date it in the 1700s, but already by the 1800s, uh, there begin to arise uh, tragic problems with industrialization, and especially at a social level. Uh, so we're, t- we're talking about uh, the whole struggle with, uh, uh, again, uh, the mass production uh, of things uh, through the industrial revolution, and uh, and the whole question of how to deal with all the problems that came out of that, um, and we're speaking of the social condition in which a great mass of society found itself to live in that sort of an environment. We're speaking of child labor. We're, we're speaking of living in the most in the utmost, um, you know, miserable conditions of of workers and. Uh, that were being exploited by the great capitalists of the day and uh, so as a way to face these social issues uh, the ideology that came to win the day at the time was socialism as an answer to the social problems and uh, there were also other ideologies but for the most part um, uh, workers felt attracted by socialism because socialism seemed to make the condition of the workers, the proletariato, uh, the very center of its theme. Uh, it preached a social gospel, uh, quote, and quote, that seemed to really have the interest of workers at its heart. Uh, so, uh, but that of course did not solve the problems. And uh, as you very well know, uh, then, uh, uh, you know, things continued to take place and um, apparently things bettered. But uh, there were a lot of, again, uh, forces at work, especially in Europe, of course, and uh, and, and all of a sudden, what was working uh, underneath, ideologically, and especially also in the countries that we were, uh, you know, conquering at the time. Speaking, especially of Africa, the colonization of Africa, 1870, 1814 which you know practically was. Dissected by the European countries and, and taken over, um, but uh, so there was a, a race towards uh, um, being first, being first, first uh, economically, first militarily, uh, first colonially, until this competition among the European nations turned against itself and when that happened then Europe faced a world war Uh, it was a world war uh, but it was especially fought in Europe and it practically destroyed much of Europe at the time I think one of the problems uh, as we look back to this history as uh, from an American point of view is that a lot of this uh, collapsing, first of all, takes place in Europe. Uh, so America seems to be out of the picture, but we must never forget that the history of America is so related to the European history that it cannot be understood apart from from Europe, as well as Europe at this point apart from America. Um Well, the First World War was the first uh, evident uh, fact of history that uh, made very clear that civilization was collapsing. We're talking about 15 million people that died in the conflict uh, that lasted for six years and the destruction of many cities. Uh, So uh, after the war, it ended in uh, 1918, after the war, um, there was a, a lot of, um, let, let us say that a great crisis uh, was, was opened up in the consciences of many. Because what had crumbled with the First World War was not just uh, the economic status of the European nations. What crumbled were also the principles upon which the humanistic uh, materialistic principles and the we would say godless or atheistic principles on on the basis of which the European project of modern society was built upon so there was a a, um, disorientation everywhere and of course there was a great economical crisis because most economies, European economies had been completely destroyed by the war so there was a lot of debt and, um, and so what happened in the midst of all that confusion uh, extreme ideologies uh, especially of a nationalistic kind took over I'm speaking about fascism uh, and Nazism And also communism. Um, Of course, that led to the Second World War. And you and I and we all cannot forget that as Hitler took over Czechoslovakia in in 30... uh, Actually, it annexed Austria first. Uh, in, in, in 1938 and then it invaded Czechoslovakia and then after that Holland and uh, of course and then it took over all the northern countries and then it took over France in a matter of few months it was attacking England and of course uh, uh, the fact of the matter was that uh, Italy had already turned fascist with Mussolini in the 1920s and uh, it, you know, Portugal was uh, also fascist, and Spain was about to turn. Speaking of 1939, and uh, Austria had become fascist, and Hungary had become fascist. This is prior to the Second World War, and then of course Germany turned, you know, Nazi, and there was an attempt to synthesize these two ideologies, fascism and Nazism, they made an allegiance to one end where the purpose was to take over. Um, basically Germany was to control Europe, Italy was to control the Mediterranean area, and then Japan came along and the idea was they, they you know, united in one pact and Japan was to to take over the Asian area and then all of th- these three main powers, along with all their allies, they were to attack Russia, and they to do, to do away with communism, and to attack America to do away with democracy. And if they had succeeded to do that, they would have the world. We are not to forget that by 1941, England was the only democratic. Surviving nation in Europe, and England was able to survive only because America stepped in, and and of course you know the outcome of the war, and the fact of the matter was that had not been for the intervention of America in the providence of God, then uh, Europe would have been or completely Germanized or Nazifized or uh, turned into a fascist dictatorial uh, regime. And these are just facts of history that no one can dispute. No one that, can, that has any knowledge of the documents and all the events of history. I'm talking even about the, the secret uh, correspondence of all at a diplomatical level. Uh, if, you, if you read those, that was exactly what they were after. That's why also, sad to say, but the Roman Catholic Church uh, came along and joined in the race. Uh, because through the fascist you know, regimes that were being established in Europe, then Roman Catholicism could establish itself a, as, as the only religion of the state as it was in, in Italy, as it was in Spain, as it was in Portugal, uh, and in other nations. Uh, so, um, the modern civilization was saved by the intervention of America. But, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it was only a matter of time until America would, would follow along. Because the ideologies that had worked up to destroy Europe, that were the self-implode, basically, um, uh, began to be exported uh, to, you know, America. This, of course, goes way back. But uh, they are now uh, coming to, uh, you know, it seemed like they want to take over nowadays, uh, In in this nation, and from my perspective, uh, the the, the day that America will will fall completely to certain ideologies, it will have such an impact over the world uh, that we'll we'll see tragic tragic times. I think we are nearing we're nearing the end. So it's high time that we take a good look at all of this and try to understand what is going on. What is our responsibility? You know, what is to be, is to be. That's for sure. <laughs> no one can change God's design, but that does not lessen our responsibility to do what we can do in the grace of God to counteract the forces of evil that the the, the, great, the glory of the gospel of God may be known among uh, the, you know the people of the earth. God is the one who will call it quit, you know and uh, but until that day we all we have the privilege and responsibility to to do all the good that we can in gospel terms um, Another thing that we can see when we consider the past is um, is that uh, this is not, if we go beyond the 1700s, we can see this, this is not the first civilization to rise and fall. That actually, uh, human history can be really outlined in a certain way as a, a sequence of civilizations that have come and gone through the centuries. The rise and the fall of empires. This has always happened. This is not what we're living today. It's not uh, something unusual. It has happened all through history. Um, which means that we have a lot to think about. <laughs> because it will be very interesting for us to study this civilization. And to understand why they have arisen, they have grown, they reached a, uh, a peak, uh, you know, a summit of development, of um, um, realizations and progress, and then all of a sudden they began to decline. And... Um, until they began to severely degenerate, until they disintegrated. Why? Why has that happened? And why has that happened systematically through the centuries? And uh, so, but the, the other question, too, is this... Um, are there some common denominators that we can find as to the causes of this decline, degeneration, and disintegration? I know it, history is not just a, a replica of, of one empire after the other, but if we look carefully, we can see... That that there are common denominators, similarities, common causes that have worked together to the destruction of human civilization any time in history. So, the challenge is, if we know how that happened, then we can better understand what is happening now as to the causes be able to understand it, and to respond according to what we see the truth to be. Uh, And then the final question is, of course, where do we turn to be able to understand? And, uh, And our answer, of course, is that we need to turn to the Bible. We need to turn to the Bible. Um, why? Well, I think the first reason is actually outside of the Bible. Because when we consider, when we look outside of the Bible, we do not see answers. We, we see only problems. <laughs> and if we see apparent answers that never work, that never solve the deep and At this point, global problems of mankind. Um, But let me be more, you know, specific about this. I carry here a book with me, written by Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm has been was uh, has been one of the uh, you know greatest thinkers of last century. Uh, Psychiatrist, a German psychiatrist. And he has written some of the uh, most important books concerning uh, uh, the problems of human society. This book here that I hold in my hand is The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness. It's an analysis of human destructiveness. Why human beings destroy themselves. Why is there a tendency in mankind to destroy itself? Where does that destructiveness come from? It is a very important question, I would say, that is uh, completely related with the theme that we are talking about. And let me just uh, read you a couple of quotes. Uh, Now, mind you, this is a 1973 book. Uh, it's about 500 pages, very, very thick print. I mean, very thick print. But it's one of those books that ought to be read by those that, are, uh, that have responsibility, I believe even you know, pulpit responsibility, to be able to inform people of what is happening. If I open the book. In the very introduction. This is what I read. The increase in violence and destructiveness. On a national and world scale. Has turned the attention of professionals. And the general public alike. To the theoretical inquiry. Into the nature and causes of aggression. Such a concern is not surprising. Surprising. What is surprising is the fact that this preoccupation is so recent. I mean, human destructiveness has been going on for thousands of years. Thousands of years. And yet only recently, the intellectuals of the world have begun to think about this aspect of human nature this destructive aspect of human nature. Why is the human being thus? Why haven't they started earlier, (laughs) centuries ago, to investigate the problem? Again, he says, the situation changed only in the middle of the 60s. One probable reason for this change was the fact that the level of violence and fear of war had passed a certain threshold Throughout the world. So it is the, it is the limit of, of human destructiveness. We have come to a threshold that if we go beyond that, there's utter destruction. And only when we have come face to face with that possibility of total extinction, then we have been forced to ask ourselves, why in the world are we this way? Where does this destructiveness come from? So, but you see, the very uh, fact that this is the case, the problem has been going on throughout history, but the fact that this is the case, the the interest in this problem of the origin of evil and the origin of man's destruction as attracted the attention of the world only recently, is a telling fact of the dishonesty of the world. The world has been forced (laughs) to look into this. And only because it has been forced, it has begun to look into it. But that tells of a dishonest heart, of a dishonest mind. But also there is another problem to uh, to underscore is the origin of this dishonesty. Let me read you from page 27 of this very important book. Now here he's speaking the author is speaking of Freud and the importance of Freud as a psychiatrist as an investigator of the human mind and the origin of men's destructiveness. this is one of the things that Freud looked into. But here's what the book says. And of course he says that the most important thing that Freud has discovered is the presence of the unconscious. There's a conscience and there is an unconscious. Which means that there is us on a surface level, and the things about us that we are conscious of, that we know, but there is also a world within us that is subconscious, so it, is, it lies under our immediate awareness of who we are and why we are what, what we are. So there are things that we may know of ourselves that are that lie underneath it all. And the question is again why why, why was this discovered only recently? that there is a man uh, as he appeared externally, but there is also a human being inside. There is a persona, an inward persona there that is maybe very different from what appears outwardly. And the reason, again, why this is so recent, because Freud, of course, goes back to the end of the 1800s, beginning of the, uh, you know, the, the... first half of the 1900s but then the book says for Freud self-knowledge means that man becomes conscious of what is unconscious so you cannot really know yourself until you know what's underneath Freud says which is true but then this is a most difficult process I mean to come to know yourself why because this process, this attempt to know what lies underneath encounters the origin of the energy of resistance by which the unconscious is defended against any attempt to make it conscious. You understand? As as man tries to get to know what's underneath him, he finds resistance from himself, of course, (laughs) from his very self. What lies underneath does not want to be known, does not want to be exposed. So as he tries to to, to go deep, he, he finds that he can't, because himself, there is something within himself that resists the attempt to get to know what's underneath. And, of course, they're only finding it out now. But, of course, the Bible had uh, had spoken about this all along. Uh, The heart is uh, wicked beyond hope. And uh, who can know it? Who can know the heart of man? God alone, says God in Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So the Bible is amazingly, amazingly um, contemporary (laughs) and always precedes the best findings that men can, can accomplish. So I say one of the reasons why we need to turn to the Bible is just because of the hopelessness of finding answers in men. You know. It is true, the true faith in the gospel, in the Bible, is preceded by despair. Despair in yourself, despair in the world, despair in man, in the human being. Always know that what you see about yourself, the basic issues that you see in yourself, that have to do with the presence of evil within yourself are true for everybody else around you. No one accepted. And so even if you just know yourself, you should have no hope in others. But and also when you look at others, whether philosophically, ideologically, or historically, then you say, There's no hope. There's no hope. And and I will say it again: there can be no true faith in Christ, trust in Christ, unless, unless that faith is preceded by a sense of hopelessness in yourself and in mankind in general. Because Christ is not, cannot be considered only as one possible option among many. <laughs> Christ if he is to be embraced truthfully, must be as embraced as the only hope that we have. And his word, from Genesis to Revelation, as the only word, the only message that can save us. Because it is not the word of man, but it is the word of God. Of course, that's why we're here as Christians, and we will be opening the Bible, and um in fact we can open the Bible this very minute in Romans chapter 1 but as we go there we can make a few more preliminary comments Romans chapter 1 and of course this time together we will only introduce our th- our theme and then we will pick it up you know in the other sessions lord willing But there is a, uh, when we say the Bible is the Word of God, of course that is fine with us who have been convinced by God that the Bible is indeed His Word. But it will not convince the unbeliever. So we can give some further reasons why we should uh, study carefully what the Bible has to say about the causes of the... uh, crumbling of our civilizations Um, and of course another thing that should be considered is that the Bible is an historical book (laughs) it's an historical book Um, so the Bible actually when we consider it from this point of view incorporates in its narrative, in its historical narrative, the history of all the major civilizations of antiquity. Of course, the beginning of mankind (laughs) uh, in Genesis, the early chapters. And then the development of the earliest civilizations in Mesopotamia. That's the region. That in, that's indicated uh, by the Bible. The Bible would not indicate South of Africa as the beginning of, of you know, mankind. I think that's an ideological um, um, thesis that is, you know, proposed today. Uh, Uh, The Bible points to the area of Mesopotamia as the area of the beginning of civilizations. In fact, I think there's plenty of history to demonstrate that. (laughs) That's the cradle of human civilizations. But then what do we find? In the Bible, we find actually the rise of these Mesopotamians' earliest civilizations. Then already in the book of Genesis, we find the... the the emerging of the Egyptian civilization. And then, of course, as Egypt declines, we find the emerging of the Assyrian civilization. And then after that, the Babylonian civilization. And after that, the Persian civilization. And after that, the Grecian civilization. And after that, the Roman. Civilizations. Of course, we then step into the New Testament, and of course, the Roman civilizations was the last <laughs> civilizations of antiquity. And so, amazingly, if we really want to understand the issues that led to the de- to the declension, and then the, the dissolution of each of these. Uh, Empires and civilizations. The Bible is the best best historical book to read, Uh, and its historical narrative—this is its historical um, narrative—embraces, incorporates all of these main civilizations of antiquity, practically all of them, from beginning, from the first to the last. To this, of course, we need to add that even if we step in the prophetic books, such as Isaiah, such as Jeremiah, such as Ezekiel, what do we find? We find entire chapters (laughs) of words that God has addressed through his prophets to these nations. You must not forget that the Bible was not only addressed to Israel, there are large portions that contain messages that were sent to these empires. Whether prophetically, even before they emerged, (laughs) as is the case of Babylonia, or Babylon, we find already in Isaiah, you know, uh, statements concerning the Babylonian empires, and many others, of course. Um, some that are contemporary words that God addressed to these nations, to these empires and civilizations in contemporary terms. of in, At the time, that things that these were uh, taking place, that they were living in the uh, stage of history. And so, and again... Uh, it would be wonderful, for example, to go to the early chapters of Isaiah and look into that, <laughs> uh, you know, beginning with Isaiah 10 all the way to the Isaiah 24. There are chapters after chapters addressed to these civilizations. Some are smaller, some are bigger, some are prophetical, some are contemporary, but they speak of the very essence of, They explain why these nations, these civilizations are crumbling or they're about to crumble or they will crumble in the future because God speaks prophetically. And there are things that could be already said in many ways as to the pride that precedes the fall of everyone Of these nations and civilizations. But we will not get into that. At this very moment. Of course. We can go beyond this. And say not only that. The the whole Bible. Can be amazingly. Enlightening. About this very issue. But we find in the Bible. Specific chapters. That. Plainly detail. And outline and delineate the causes of the crumbling of civilizations. These common denominators that we've been talking about. And of these chapters, I would point out only two. One, of course, is Genesis 1 through 3. (laughs) I mean, the rise and fall of mankind in Adam. What, What a wonderful um and without parallel in its importance. Uh, what a wonderful uh, text to study as deeply as possible to understand the root issues why mankind emerges, to to the goodness of whom shall we ascribe the rising of any nation. Why, do that, why does that nation have abilities to be able to, to develop, perhaps intellectually or uh, economically, you know, materially, scientifically, medically? Where does that come from? Well, we would say the common goodness of God. And then why? Why do civilizations fall? Well, a lot of basic, crucial points can be gathered from Genesis 3 about the um, apostasy of the Adamic race in the person of Adam and Eve. But there is a second chapter that wraps it all up in in a way that is completely amazing, just as amazing as, as in Genesis, the early chapters. But because what, what this chapter deals with as nations as they are after the fall of Adam then there are things that may may be more immediately tangible to us that can help us to understand our situation the crumbling of our civilization as it is taking place in our time in our fallen race and that chapter of course is Romans 1 Romans 1. Uh, There are things in this chapter. That are so deep. (laughs) Just like the early chapters of Genesis. You just never stop being amazed. At the things that you see. Uh, you, You have heard I'm sure. About Bonhoeffer. The German theologian. He had neo-orthodox tendencies, of course, and we, we do not appreciate those. But uh, there are statements, plenty of statements that he made that can be appreciated by, by any Christian. And one of these statements that caught my attention was the fact that so often we, we read the Bible with glasses in the sense that um, we, we carry with the reading of the Bible I uh, should I say a certain approach that keeps us from keeps us from reading the text afresh and anew. Of course, there are truths that we, we believe and are with us all the time. And it is on the basis of these truths that we read the scripture and interpret the scripture, of course. But there is also an approach that a construction, a mind construction that keeps us from coming to the Bible afresh and anew to where we can say to the Lord, speak to me afresh. Open my eyes again (laughs) that I may see greater depth in your word, especially as they relate to me personally, to my family, to my church, to my community, to my nation, and to my world. and and our prayer will be that God will speak to us exactly in these terms that he will reveal to us from his word things that perhaps we have not considered or considered only partially or we have not tied them together in a way that it will be easier for us to understand what the apostle really is saying in this scripture and what the meaning of what Paul is saying is so applicable and relevant and, uh, in our contemporary world. <coughs> so, um, before we actually get into Romans 1, as, as I'm saying, this is only an introductory you know, message and then we'll pick it up in later occasions, Lord willing. Let us, first of all, uh, take a look at the book of Romans, but very, very quickly to be able to to go from the general to the you know, particular. Because, as you know, context is basic to a correct interpretation of scripture. So, what is the letter of... his his letter then there is a body, there is a content that Paul communicates in this letter that can be divided basically in two sections, one emphasizes uh, the theological message of the Bible, the theological content, I I wouldn't call it theory, I don't like that word, (laughs) The, the, the theological truths that are uh, of the the essence of the Christian message. This goes from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 11, verse 36. And, And of course, the whole statement of Paul ends with these words, For of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever." Amen. So, Paul ends this way because the theology (laughs) that he communicates is a theology that comes from God and um, points to the glory of God as his final object, uh, its final purpose. Uh, Once Paul terminates this part of this letter that uh emphasizes the theological c- um, um, content of the Christian message. From chapter 12, all the way almost to the end, Paul would emphasize the practical implications of the theological truths that he has stated in the preceding chapters. So where he says, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, you see that, that therefore introduces the practical implications. In the light of what I wrote. Therefore. This is how we are to live. By the mercies of God. That you present your bodies. A living sacrifice. solely acceptable to God. Which is your reasonable service. So. He steps into the practicality. Of the Christian life. So. He doesn't begin with the practical. He begins with the theological. the, The theological truths. That are the essence of the Christian message. It is on these truths that our life must be built so that we can live differently <laughs> so that our life may be put at the service of the glory of God and not the glory of ourself. Then of course there are final words of uh, conclusion Paul's salutations that you know take up practically all of chapter 16. But having, you know, divided the book of Romans this way, uh, let us focus on the first part. <laughs> and I'm speaking, therefore, on the theological part from chapter 1, verses 18, all the way to chapter 11. And when we do that, we can step into... Uh, we, we find that this, this first theological section is itself divided in two portions (laughs) i'm speaking about chapter two and verse 20 uh 21 you see where paul says but now well that but now is a uh how should i say um a um, dividing point in which um uh marks the end of a first section in Paul's arguments that's all dedicated to the condition of man as sinful and lost chapter 118 through chapter 3 verse 20 and then from chapter 3 verse 21 all the way to the end of ch- to the end of chapter 11 then there's a whole section dedicated to the salvation of man as sinful and lost before God. So man lost? Why is man lost? What is his condition? What is his plight? And then how man can be how can man be saved? What has God done to save us from this plight in which we find ourselves? So Paul says, but now after he said in verse uh, 20. Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. There is nothing we can do. In terms of works and or merits. To save ourselves Paul says. And that's the conclusion of all that he's been saying. From chapter 1 verse 18 on. And having brought us down, down, down. And having showed the despair of our situation, the hopelessness of our situation, no one can be saved by his own works. Then he says, "You say, "Well, how then? How then?" That' says, well, But now, wait a minute, I'm not through. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So Paul now enters into the saving part of the theological Part of his letter. Well, let us get even more focused in this. Let us consider the first part of his letter that's dedicated to the loss, the condition of man as sinful and lost. And when we analyze these three chapters, these very three chapters, what do we find? Well, Even here, we find a dividing point that dissects this first part into more sections. (laughs) We go by twos. We go by twos. And the dividing point here is actually found in chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew. You see that? What does that mean? It means that prior to this verse beginning from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 2, verse 16, Paul has been talking about the condition of mankind as a whole, of the nations. And then from chapter 2, after a transition in the preceding verses, in verse 17, he begins to address the condition of israel in its lost and sinful state so this is this is very logical isn't it there is a rationality to the bible the bible is not superstition the bible is not mindlessness the bible is it's its own rationality and it makes perfect sense and Well, then, if we go even more, (laughs) if we draw, see closer to the first part that's dedicated to the nations, to the condition of mankind as a whole, we find another two divisions. I mean, another division that splits this part into another two parts. And we find the dividing point of this other division uh, in uh, in chapter two, verse one, where Paul says, "Therefore." Well, that's a word that usually signals uh, a departure. You know, in the light of what we said, this is the consequence. Therefore. In the lot of what I said, therefore. So, how are these two parts, you know, related? Well, the first part, from chapter one, beginning with verse eighteen, all the way to verse thirty-two. Uh, that last thirty-two being the verse of transition. Paul speaks, first of all, of of the. Um, again, the condition of mankind as sinful and lost before god and then in terms of actual responsibility the responsibility of mankind for its condition and then in chapter 2 verse 1 it begins to address the consequences of that in terms of judgment in terms of judgment Paul says, well, now that I have spoken of the condition of all, don't start pointing your finger to others, because you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So, and he goes on to speak of the judgment of God not the judgment of men, not even your own judgment, because we like to judge others, but we don't like to judge ourselves. Paul says, wait a minute, the judgment of God will fall on everyone, because of what we have all become and and done. Of course, the theme of judgment is part of our condition. (laughs) And the theme of judgment Paul will follow the same pattern that he followed as he addressed the condition of mankind as a whole, responsibility for sin and rebellion and a lost condition of the the world as a whole. He will follow the same pattern as he addresses Israel. And then in that chapter 3, verse 20, he will say, therefore, there's, there's no hope for anybody on the basis of men's possibilities. So this is <laughs> the the logic of the gospel, the logic of the gospel. The gospel is not rationalistic. The gospel doesn't have its basis on men's thinking. But the the, the 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 gospel is logical, is rational because rationality is a gift of God. And God himself is rational in his infinite ways, which of course go beyond our rationality, <laughs> way surpassing it. Now, we have only time in the remaining time to uh, look at the outline of that first session that Paul dedicates to the responsibility of mankind for its condition. Paul will speak of his present day uh, mankind in, um, how shall we say? Uh, He will paint a dark picture, let let me put it that way, of what mankind was in his time. Of course, Paul is speaking of the Roman Empire. He was a Roman citizen. That's the empire that he lived in. One of these civilizations that have come and gone. (laughs) So this is very important. Because as Paul delineates here, uh, the present status of the empire, of mankind as it was, in Roman civilization, he will spell out for us indicators these common deno- d- denominators get, can be found also in other civilizations as they have come and they have gone, and as we will uh, draw from Paul's outline and specifics that he spells out in this portion of a chapter, that we can see. Oh, I can see! I can see how this all interrelated. I can see how that was true then and it is true today and now I can see why it is sequential and consequential and and this is so enlightening therefore I must share it with with those around me because they need to know because only the gospel only the gospel can help us understand Um, so we have only time to see very broadly, this the scheme uh, of Paul, the you know design, the picture, the basic points, and let me just put it this way. So Romans one, verse sixteen through seventeen, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul here announces the theme of the letter. The theme of the letter is the salvation that God accomplishes through the message of the gospel. (laughs) A salvation that addresses the Condition of mankind as it is lost in sin, and then the intervention of God in Christ, an intervention that, for, that by which we are forgiven, we are justified, we are sanctified, and then we are glorified. He will take it all the way up, all the way up, until he will say, "Oh my, the glory of God! <laughs> How can we fathom His ways and His judgments?" This is way past finding out. And so so Paul here here announces his theme. He says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Not because it is the power of men, but because it is the power of God. Not because it helps men, but it actually saves everyone who believes All of these are words that carry mountains (laughs) of meaning. As you very very well understand. Uh, The gospel of Christ. The power of God. Salvation. Everyone who believes. Every one of these terms is is pregnant of meaning. Uh, And then of course the Jew first. And also the Greek. Because in the dispensation of the way God handled things through history. He has addressed the Jew first. And then the rest of the world. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Why does Paul say that? Because he's just been talking about the fact that man is lost. And he needs to be saved. Saved by the gospel. Why? Why, why? why does the gospel save men? Because in the gospel, God reveals a saving righteousness that we do not have in ourselves. But it is absolutely necessary to escape the judgment of God, to be able to be reconciled to God. And this is all, of course, through the obedience of Christ, the sacrifi- sacrificial Obedience of Christ. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The Faith being the instrument, <laughs> the humble instrument by which we receive this righteousness that we have through the sacrifice, the obedient sacrifice of Christ by which we can be forgiven forever. Now, as Paul has touched on the lost condition of man, uh, a question, uh, as, as men needing to be saved, the question comes up, why does man need to be saved? What's the matter with him? So Paul enters now into the whole theme Of the lost condition of man. Of humankind. And he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against all ungodliness. And unrighteousness of men. This is what. What what, you know the matter is with us. This is what we are up against. The revelation of the wrath of God. Who will. uh, Who is revealed against. All ungodliness. And unrighteousness. So, if you are ungodly and despise God, if you are unrighteous and despise the moral values of God, the commandments of God, you will have to face His judgment. And who, cannot, who can say, I've not been ungodly or I've not been unrighteous. But now notice, and again, we need to go but quickly, and then we'll pick it up more in detail you know, next time. Lord willing. Paul says, Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, why does Paul say that? Well, Paul now begins to point out to the main reason, basically, why man being lost, remains lost. Because man does not seek after the truth that can set him free. But he actually tries to suppress, to Strangle the truth. In what way does it do it? Well, before we answer that question, we need to notice that Paul, you know, puts the article before truth, even in the original. <laughs> so Paul here is not speaking that men suppresses any truth, because that wouldn't be true. There are many truths about archaeology and history and finance and that the science, you know, and the men is after and knows. But there is one truth, the truth, (laughs) that man does not want to recognize. And Paul spells it out in verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So the truth that man suppresses is the truth of God, the, the, the existence of God. The, of God as God, creator of the universe, glorious, infinite, eternal, sovereign, righteous, loving, merciful. That's the truth that man does not want to see, but wants to suppress. And that's basically what constitutes him, a sinner. That's the essence of sin. And what makes men a sinner is this fact that what may be known of God is manifest, is patent, is clear. For God has shown it to them. In what way? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God through creation, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful to God, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, that's the first central basic statement of Paul. Paul will again and again show in what ways man suppresses the truth that is related to God. And that suppression, first of all, has to do with the very revelation of God. God has revealed himself for all to see. Actually, Paul says, God is revealing himself. Just like Psalm 19, the heavens declare, not declared, They declare, they keep on declaring the glory of God. And the firmament reveals his handiwork. So God's revelation has at a beginning point, yes, when he created the universe, but continues, furthermore, is universal. Everybody can see it. So Paul says they are inexcusable. And underscore in your mind that word, which means in Greek, without apology. They are without apology, without justification, without excuse. Why? And notice that man, Paul has not even spoken of the gospel. He's not even spoken of God's commandments. He's only speaking of the way man rejects the reality of God. And he says already at that point, man is without excuse. It is not the preaching of the gospel that makes man inexcusable. (laughs) It is not even the preaching of the commandments of God that makes man inexcusable. It is the very fact that God does, man does not recognize the God who created the universe that constitutes him a sinner. And he's already under judgment as it is. Man is not made responsible when the gospel reaches him in some jungle. Man is responsible as he is, anywhere he is in the universe. Or in this world. Because he rejects. The God of creation. When God has made known his reality. Through the things that he has created. So everybody Paul says. As they reject God. Mankind as a whole. As it rejects God. Is sinful. Responsible. Worthy of judgment. Oh. And so, so that's the beginning point. That's the first statement that Paul makes. The essence of sin is the rejection of God, the despising of God. That's the essence of it. Uh, Then, as we quickly move along, (laughs) uh, look at uh, verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools, And changed the glory of God. Of the uncorruptible God. So you see these two verbs in verse 21. They did not glorify him as God. That's the essence of sin. That's the primary, first sin of men. And then in verse 23. Something else. They changed something else. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. Into an image made like corruptible men of birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So, what is Paul talking about here? Paul is talking about idolatry. Uh, After the rejection of God, man turns, he actually fabricates idols. So, but then we must quickly continue. What follows that? Therefore, an important word. God has gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, with change the truth of God for a lie, the lie of, uh, the, of the idols, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up with to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And here we can see as As another section, another subsection of Paul's reasoning. He's moving from the first issue, the rejection of God. Then he says, the fabric of the idols. And then what he's talking about here, he's he's talking about this, uh, what we could term this uh, reckless immorality that begins to take over society. And as he delineates it here, uh, a rampant immorality, uncontrolled immorality, lawless immorality, uncontained immorality. And then, what happens? Well, as Paul said in verse 28, to do those things which are not fitting, then he begins to spell them out. And he does it this way being filled with all unrighteousness. And what do you mean, Paul, by all unrighteousness? Well, well, I mean uh, sexual immorality. I mean wickedness. I mean covetousness, maliciousness of envy, murder, strife deceit, evil mindedness they are worse backbiters haters of God, violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents undiscerning, untrustworthy unloving, unforgiving unmerciful that's what I'm talking about and if we would have to give a title to this to this list what would we say well, we could see, we could call it a drift towards self-destruction. Because what is Paul talking about, these are all sins that we commit against one another. Uh, he is earlier addressed the sin that we commit against God, personally against Him, directly against Him, as we refuse Him, to acknowledge Him. Love him, believe him, and serve him, and then as he enters into this, the these phases, he shows us how that all leads step by step to this drift, to this vortex, where uh, of rampant, uncontrolled, unconstrained, uh, uncontained, lawless immorality, and in this sense, lawless immorality is committed against one another because again (laughs) uh, uh, verse 29 sexual immorality is committed against other people wickedness is against other people covetousness is against other people maliciousness uh, or envy, or murder, or strife, or deceit, or evil mindednesses, or whispers, or backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient. Paul is just talking about how we, we really begin to massacre one another with evil. And the society decays. It goes towards disintegration, moral disintegration. So, let me end my thoughts this morning just by pointing out to these four steps, these four phases that Paul delineates here. The first phase uh, that leads to the collapsing of a a civilization is the uh, denial of God. That's where it all begins. The denial of the God who gave you all the means to begin your civilization. Because all the faculties that we have are from Him. But men do not acknowledge Him. And Paul says, that's the first phase. It all begins with that. The rejection of God. The second phase, this degrading, this vicious this sordid idolatry that he you know describes the making of idols and look around you how many idols are today everywhere then the third phase is this reckless rampant uncontrolled uncontained lawless immorality when there's there's no more limit you know we've come to a point when Men and women don't even know who they are. As men and women. And when children are born, you cannot even call in a boy or a girl. They're it. Until they find out themselves who they are. I mean, this is mindless. This is crazy. But this is where we have come. And Paul says, when that takes place, you are nearing the end. Because then... uh, This vortex of self-destruction as evil comes out of the heart of men, Why? Because God has lifted up his restraints. And so when we see a civilization that is collapsing because of the rampant immorality, destructive immorality, then we can tell God is abandoning us. Three times, Paul says, God abandoned them. To the consequences of their evil, that they may experience, in the evil consequences of evil, uh, a judgment for their doing, and for the, uh, the you know the rejection of him. Now, um, there is much more to see in this passage, because as we will see next time. Lord willing. We will see not only. That. Uh, these things are. Sequential. But they are. Consequential. They are interrelated. In, in terms of cause and effect. The cause of the vortex. Of self destructiveness. Is. Is in the uncontrolled immorality. And the cause of uncontrolled immorality is in the serving of idols. And the cause of the serving of idols is the rejection of God. It is all interrelated, not only sequentially, but consequentially. And it always happens like that in history. You can take any civilization... And you will see that to the degree to which that civilization has followed this scheme, this process, it has ultimately crumbled and destroyed itself. You can analyze our civilization this way, as the Roman civilization or the Egyptian civilization. If you study the Egyptian civilization, you will see that the best documents, even in moral terms, of Egypt are the most ancient. There are some scriptures in ancient Egypt that resemble the Book of Proverbs, uh, for, for for example, it's amazing text, but they disappear as the Egyptian religion becomes more and more um, uh, idolatrous. Um, Um, may the Lord give us more opportunities to follow this theme and to dig you know, deeper into his word that we may uh, share it with others around us it is high time that we do so with uh, in, in the most you know, committed terms Amen